Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Gurdjieff's Aphorisms, Essence of a Teaching. The talk was given by Carl Grimsman on January 6th, 2024, via Zoom. Carl was born into the Gurdjieff work environment during the first years of the New York Foundation. He attended the children's group there and later worked with Louise March, a direct student of the Russian mystic George Gurdjieff at East Hill Farm. The first two books in his The Soul's Traverse series are Sunbridge and The Kindling. In this talk, Carl offers an overview of Gurdjieff's life and teaching. He discusses nine of the 38 aphorisms that were posted at the Priory, the center that was established in the 1920s near Paris, where people trained in the system of knowledge that became known as the work. During the live presentation, he showed a poster that was developed for the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man and several photographs of Gurdjieff, students, and family. While speaking about the aphorisms, Carl refers to many of Gurdjieff's ideas for work on self and to the book Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Carl Grimsman. It is good to be with you. I want you to feel something. What? Something that sparks you. A piece you'd been looking for. Something you can use. Isn't that what you come for? That's what I come to talks for. To be reached touched. I want you to feel something and to note what you feel. I invite and call upon the earth and sky and the four directions to make a space for us to meet together here. And I invite and humbly I invoke the powers of all that is righteous and good to sanctify this space for us to be together in good faith and heart to consider things as true and pure and present as we can be. I light a candle for the central fire of I am. Can I allow me to turn my head off and any active concerns I may have about past or future? Can I set these aside for later? In order to truly get here, I become aware of my breathing. Please join me if you would. I begin to follow my breathing in and out. I sense my body breathing. I begin to slow and lengthen my breathing in and out. I pull my breath deep into my belly and release it outward in all directions. Focusing on my breathing, I feel my day recede, the outer world 
recede. I continue to lengthen my breathing and slow my breathing. And paying attention, I find my breathing leads me into the now. I am here. I want to be here. I'm glad you are here with me. Now, these aphorisms of Gurdjieff's are special to me. For me, they form a bare bones skeleton of his teaching, an accessible concentration of many of the ideas and basic exercises, which I have long practiced putting into action and contemplated. Over time, there have been some that I could not yet put into action, couldn't do, or couldn't understand. Maybe I wasn't ready to love my parents, or I don't get what is objective art. But these are worthy of contemplation, and there is always more from them to be given. For me, they are permanent companions on my path. Now, this idea of contemplation, I find, as a cousin to meditation, it is not about mulling or trying to figure something out. More, it is reflection upon, sort of a resting on. For me, it reminds me of gazing into water, watching a sunfish, watching me. We used to vacation in the Catskills at a lake. Picture two feet of water with a sunfish midpoint backed up into some water weeds. So many times I just watched them and they watched me. It's learning to hold something. And that's so useful, even for decades. Because in such a simple way, I learned to begin to exercise will and to unify myself, to attain my center. These are also reminders to myself. Suffering, why? All right, I'm here to awaken, like that. Themes of my life, it brings them around again and again. I also find it like reading the lines in a poem, between the lines, I should say, because in that sense, it builds peripheral vision, which is very useful in self-observation. So contemplation has many uses. It stretches me in the direction I want to go. At the same time, I find the pitfalls of words of wisdom, wise sayings are easy to forget or fail to get and just slop over. They can be regarded as simplistic. I have given these aphorisms on more than one occasion and had people say things like, got it. Nothing new. I know that. Simple stuff. They can be read in five minutes. That's why I think it might be made more memorable if I was to put it in the context of a story. I think context is so important, and that's what I would like to do. I would like to tell a story of this man and his aphorisms and the special way they came to us, and in particular to me. And in between, I'm going to present nine aphorisms for our consideration, ones that fit in with this story, and in most cases serve the purpose of illustrating what I consider the first great aim of this teaching, which is to awaken. So 
Let's begin. Long ago, and not so long ago, long about 150 years ago, some say 1872. Others are convinced it's 1866 in the Caucasus region, which lies between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, was born a baby boy. There in the nexus between Old World Turkey and Persia, which is to say Iran, and Russia, in Russian Armenia. Now, we're not sure of his exact year, but his birthday is January 13th. That's momentous. We're almost there. And his name, Georgi Ivanovich Yerd Ziev Kerchief. Now, this boy growing up, this Georgi, had many interests. He was uh, inclined to science and music. He's quite a good singer in the choir, religion, and roughhousing with his friends. He was also good with his hands, enjoyed making things and fixing things in his father's workshop. His father, one of the last of the old-time bards, a storyteller and poet, when he wasn't working to make a living for his family, and through that, Georgi became acquainted with the mythic dimension of life. Example, Georgi might be working in his workshop with his father, and his father's friend, a man of like mind, might come in and nonchalantly say, where is God now? And Georgi's father would think about it for a second and say, he's up in Sari Kamish, up in the tall pines. But what's he doing there? What's God doing there? God is making double ladders and affixing happiness to the top of each one for individuals and whole nations to ascend and descend. Georgi had a proclivity to observe the state of man and found the helplessness of science and religion to answer fundamental questions about the nature of man, his potential, his purpose, existence, the universe. He found that distressing, and it was in his disposition to engage as a young man and into full adulthood a 20-year search for knowledge, which took him from Egypt to Tibet, sometimes with companions, with working in between for money to fund these trips or recharge or learn a new language, 20 years. In his own words, he later said, in distant times there existed a real knowledge, but owing to all kinds of life circumstances, political and economic, it was lost, and only fragments of it remain. These remains I collected with other people. We learned of them and found them through people, monuments, customs, literature, our experiments, comparisons, and so on. He appeared in Moscow in 1912 and started a group and another one in St. Petersburg, a long train ride away. To his early students, he looked like no one else, graceful as a cat, eyes that looked into you, 
You were drawn to him. He was magnetic. If you were a seeker, you wanted to follow him. He brought with him a system based on knowledge, the effects of his quests itself, and his own self-work, a system that would become known as the work. Two early couples, couples that were early students, became key in his teaching, became teachers, and helped him establish and manifest and disseminate his work into the world. They were Peter Ospensky and Madame Sophie Ospensky, and Thomas DeHartman and Madame Olga DeHartman. Now, all four were teachers. Thomas was a composer and a conductor. Olga DeHartman was an opera singer. Peter was a journalist and author, and Sophie Ospensky was a group leader later on and helped bridge the gap between Ospensky and Gurdjieff, because within a few years, Gurdjieff and Ospensky parted ways, and Ospensky started his own group of the work. Now, all this was upset by World War I, the Russian Revolution, and the Civil War that followed. And pretty soon in 1918, Gurdjieff and his group headed south, ended up in Essentuki. They were trying to outpace the spread of these wars, and it was very terrible. The work was forged in the tumult of world events. No one could have seen this coming, but it had a very, very hard birth that way. They were going for five years until they found a permanent home from Essentuki, at one point went through the mountains uh, for weeks on foot and on horseback, ended up in Tiflis in Georgia. There they met the DeSalsmans, which were the third key couple. But before that, I want to share one aphorism that applies here, which is that the worse the conditions of life, the more productive the work, always provided you remember the work. The worse the conditions of life, the more productive the work, always provided you remember the work. Now, an example of that is that Gurdjieff sent Madame de Hartman on a solo journey back into the war zone to get some belongings and things. Couldn't send any of the men or they would have been arrested and killed. Only a woman could go. And because of her upbringing, she had never left the house alone. She'd always had a companion. And then when she got married, she only went out with Thomas. But she did this. And it was a lesson for her and Thomas, who were almost inseparable at that time, and for her and for everybody in the group. He was always using the life that they had to teach. The DeSalsmans were Alexander and Tiflis they met in He knew five languages and was an expert at theater lighting, which figured in later as well, and you'll see. And he designed this poster because at that point, he instituted the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. And this was some of Alexander's work as a flyer at that time. It was done in three languages, only later in English, like you see it here. Madame Jean de Salzman, of course, she was a dancer and she was teaching something called Dal Rose, Eurythmics, which was already uh, sort of in the direction that Gurdjieff was going. And so she would become a key in the movements that Gurdjieff developed. 
And then later on, she would actually inherit the entire effort to promote the work after Gurdjieff's death. So these three couples, they often felt like weak people, but they were very, very strong people. Spensky with promotion of the ideas, the Hartman with the music, and the Salzman with the movements. These are three key parts of Gurdjieff's teaching. Movements were being intensively practiced at this time. So they had to move again. They moved to Constantinople, all the way across Turkey, and then to Berlin in 1921, and then finally to Paris in uh, 22, whereupon Madame de Hartmann, who at that point was his secretary and uh, personal assistant, was charged with finding a place where they could find a permanent home. And she did within a few months, which was the now famous Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man at Chateau du Priore at Fontainebleau-Avon. It was about an hour southeast of Paris. This was a large manor house, three stories, almost institutional in size. Another house on the property, some outbuildings. It was an historic estate. It's actually perfect for them. There were still some blocks of an old abbey there, which is probably what they got the name originally. But it had lawns, gardens, a whole forest, and part of it was walled. It was maybe 75 acres. It's big. The people that were there originally were Russians and English. Russians who had come out of the east with Gurdjieff, and English who were coming from Uspensky's group, which he had very successfully established in England at this time. And actually, they provided a lot of the funds for this real estate as well. So it's a good thing, really. And so yeah, up to 60 people, sometimes up to 100 with guests. They were doing household chores, gardening, and livestock, built a Turkish bath almost right away. But what they did do almost from the first day was start to level ground for their study house. This was with picks and shovels, and these people were not craftsmen or workers. These were mostly intellectuals, and this was part of their work to do this. Alexander de Salzman found a Zeppelin hanger frame, which they purchased two sections of, and it was delivered in lorries from the French Air Force. And so with urgency, the construction proceeded. Between the posts, they were nailing up rough boards, and they filled the space in between with leaves, plastered it with mud, reinforced with straw, installed wood stoves inside and dried it out and painted it. They had to make do with what they had. The roof was sort of a bowl, and the walls were pretty high, almost two stories, and covered with tar paper. The high band of windows on each side, which was higher than a man's head, was all salvaged out of the greenhouse there. Within three months, they had the thing closed in and semi-usable, although it took another whole year for them to fit it out the way they wanted it. So what Gurdjieff said, and this is not an aphorism, fits here, only super efforts count. I love that. And I love it because it's been true in my experience. There are many ways to interpret that. It could be a, a slow drip of effort, a super one, nevertheless, or it could be a really hard thing that you do internally or externally or both. 
My commentary is that extraordinary efforts are required to break out of ordinary man. Extend yourself, see what happens. And then I came up with not all super efforts count, though. They must be directed. They must be smartly directed, either by oneself or whoever is running the show, I guess. Your chief was very close on this construction project, by the way. Uh, there are a lot of photographs of him right there. And he wasn't a young man anymore. He was well up in his 50s, I think. And he wasn't doing the work, but he was directing it. This was a super effort. So there's another aphorism coming here, which is, remember here that work is not for work's sake, but is only a means. Remember that here, work is not for work's sake, but is only a means. How to understand this? My commentary, make all work dual purpose, inner and outer. Use all outer work for inner work. Use all work to observe, learn, and adjust behavior. First, see, do not try and change, or you will mask yourself to yourself. Instead, see starkly. This is how I am. Then choose, how do I wish to be? Then try. Emulate that, then become. Try becomes do. So then the finishing of the study house, like the shell was three months from October to the end of, the, of 22, semi-usable. The decorating took all of 23. The windows were painted with translucent paints by Alexander de Salzman in a most beautiful, warm, captivating way. The stage was part of the earth that had been left high, covered with linoleum, and in front of it was a fountain that was lit specially and could have perfume put into it. There was a fence for an inner and outer area. There were umpteen carpets on the floor and on the walls, and special lighting up and down the aisles on the sides, again by Alexander de Salzman. Between you and me, I love that guy. He's really an artist with these special red shades. It was unmistakably a sacred space when you entered it. Nobody could deny that. And it was amazing because it was a temporary building. I'm an old carpenter from way back, and I'm an artist. To me, it's incredible. This is where the aphorisms appeared in the study hall towards the end of 23. Uh, there were 38 of them that were encoded by Gurdjieff himself for the students to ponder in a special script designed either by or with Alexander de Salzman, which in a way resembled bean sprouts, I would say, or a very uh, Mideastern flavored script outlined by de Salzman on white calico cloth painted in by some of the women on the floor and then raised up overhead as a canopy over the space. This is where they were. I'm going to give four aphorisms now and then open the floor to see what we feel. 
If you have not by nature a critical mind, your staying here is useless. If you have not by nature a critical mind, your staying here is useless. I think simply without a critical mind, there is no beginning and no possibility to start the process. And I'll leave that at that. This next one goes like this. Like what it does not like. What is it? That's my question. I'm going to say the aphorism again. Like what it does not like. It is in quotation marks. I have quite a bit here that I want to share about this one. One of the more powerful ones for me. What is it? Any and all resistance to my efforts to awaken. Any force that resists my efforts to come out of my mechanicalness, my automatic behavior, to become a man without quotation marks. That is a Gurdjieffian term, a man or woman without quotation marks. Anything that's trying to stop me from doing that is it. Anything that's trying to stop me from rising above the clay of my existence to elevate or evolve myself, to connect with my higher self, to connect with God. And let me name some things, and you probably have some too. Ego. Devil. Sloth, envy, pride, the seven deadly sins, distraction, my waking sleep, when I prioritize comfort and safety, social pressure, real or imagined, about, in short, my entire own lower nature. I watch my inner workings. When I feel self-sabotage or self-negation, can I pay attention? What is it that a feeling of resistance is arising for? What am I keeping myself from seeing and feeling? What part smooths things over when I do something bad? It shows me. I can use it as a pointer to identify these things. Oh, you don't like this? And there's something there. You want me to do what? I'll do the opposite. My future teacher would later write, our devils can be our best help if we pay attention. There's two more here. Only conscious suffering has any sense. I love the strange translation or the word play there, it makes it to me so memorable. Only conscious suffering has any sense. Could have said makes any sense. That wouldn't have been as powerful or as memorable to me. Has any sense. Only conscious suffering has any sense. For this, I want to turn to Fritz Peters, who wrote Boyhood with Gurdjieff. I'm going to paraphrase and make personal something that he reported that Gurdjieff said. So these are Gurdjieff's thoughts paraphrased to me. G explained, suffering is important because it's a necessary part of life without which one cannot grow. When suffering, I feel self-pity. I want to escape that which makes me feel bad. 
Real man or woman feels real happiness, but when feeling real suffering doesn't try to stop this, accepts it knowing it is proper to us. I must suffer to know the truth about myself. I must learn to suffer with will, to make it intentional, feel with all my being, must wish with such suffering that it will help to make me conscious, help me to understand. That's just one aspect of it. And we're just touching on things here. It's such a vast subject. This is almost just an introduction. This is the last one before we'll take a little break and open the floor. Remember yourself always and everywhere. Remember yourself always and everywhere. Well, to me, it's a cone and a conundrum right off the bat. I can't. It's impossible. I can't do that. What can I do? I don't know. It's the kind of thing that you you hold. You can hold. You can hold that. You can turn it into a wish. You can let it help you. I don't think you could do it. Anyways, I want to sort of bundle everything here that remember yourself without getting too much into the definition of what that even means. Let's just broaden it to say to awaken, to be present, to develop attention, to practice intentional suffering, conscious labor, to remember myself, observe myself, to know and understand myself. That whole bundle, all of this is the struggle for consciousness. For me, the initial breakthrough is as though coming out of a coma, an initial burning through of the fog of some really deep sleep, which I fought for, went to war for, and made it my hill to die on. I was in warrior mode at the time, and I'm not saying that's the only way, but that's what I did. And this was followed by, I'm working on it, a million momentary wake-ups on a continuum, a repetitive, cumulative, coming to a daily dance between ordinary sleep and consciousness, deja vu, alarm clocks, Grace of God and standing by the door. That's it. So then, what arises in you? Feel free to be succinct as our time together is short. I'm fairly new in this uh, space. What I feel right now, it's uh, the urge to hold some space, to be able to Create and hold space so that the container of whatever is within, I can start seeing it. I was uh, drawn to the peripheral vision is useful in self-observation. I'd love to hear more about what your experience of that is. Yeah, very simple. Catch yourself. You need to have the ability to have an oblique view. Again, that may be something you can contemplate. It's almost as though we go after self-observation rather than letting it inform us. And the obliqueness to me means that 
you become informed by your own self, of your own self. You do. So when I try to self-remember, I place my attention on the body and I could observe the sensations, but I also read we have to feel our bodies and it's very hard for me to distinguish sensation from feeling the body. I'll let it go at that. I'd be curious to know is if when you're working, are you able to watch yourself work? I can observe myself maybe brief moments, not all the time. To hold attention is hard. Yeah. Like what you do not like. There are so many things that come up every day that I don't like if I pay attention. Small things even. That's something that I can practice with. When there's minor irritants, the big things are more difficult. But working with at least being conscious or aware of the fact that I don't like something. But for me, working with accepting what feeling I have and considering that I possibly could accept this situation. I mean, there's so many things, even in the world, that are going on that are distasteful to me in some ways. But can I accept that that's the way that it is? And even things in myself, not just what others do. I have a question or an observation. When I first learned that the aphorisms were written in a script, a new language, I was puzzled. Why are they obscured? They're already difficult enough to understand. Why are they another layer buried from our accessibility? Yeah, I agree. Wait till we get to Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. When Gurdjieff realized that people were getting it too easily, he made it harder to get. We cannot appreciate it or else we could try to deal with it. Well, what I'd like to point to here is that there's a time resonance here of 100 years, because the end of 23 and the beginning of 24, there was a lot going on there. And that's exactly where we are here 100 years later. And if there's any meaning in that, there is to me. I like it. But we'll see more of this as we go in the second part here. Life at the Priory, the end of 23, was long days, late dinners, lectures, and movements into the night as a buildup to the first voyage to America. Here I wrote, do you like the resonance of the years? I like the gravity of it and the rhythm and the weight of it. And for me, it is like a bell tolling a hundred years. So the end of 23, Gurdjieff sent a man named Oraj, Alfred Oraj, an Englishman, to America to try to stir up interest, start a group, and maybe make a path for them to do some movements demonstrations. And it wasn't with much time because it was only a few months later that they went. Oraj, though, I would call the seventh 
main figure in the formative years of the work. These were almost founders. That could be blasphemous. Rujif was the originator, but the Espenskys, the DeHartmans, the DeSalsmans, and Oraj helped him found this, again, manifest and disseminate this into reality, into the world. And that was Gurdjieff's main mission. He wanted to help people awaken, but his real main mission was to establish this teaching for the future, in my opinion. Anyways, Araj was a well-known editor of a magazine in England called The New Age. And like many of these other people, he really just dropped his old life and went to the Priore and then went to America and did what he was asked. This was a culmination of, what, 10 years of work on Gurdjieff's part when they went to America. They first had some demonstrations in Paris just to quell the nerves of the dancers. These movements, these sacred dances, were a very integral part of the teaching because they help people work on all three centers. People are three-centered beings per Gurdjieff. That would be our thinking center, our emotional center, and our moving center, which is our body. And the movements served all of these with music and the dancing and the attention that was required, a very spiritual experience to do these dances. So it was this week, actually yesterday, 100 years ago, they set sail for the first trip to America, which would become the work's greatest garden, you could say, in the future. It still is. 40 people, at least, including musicians and performers, with no reservations, no bookings, no formal group there, not much money, just into the blue. I have a photo of Gurdjieff arriving. Uh, Let's see if you can see this. In New York Harbor almost on his birthday in 1924, would have been next week, 100 years ago. He's arriving in New York Harbor. So our story jumps ahead five years to midtown Manhattan, where my future teacher, Louise Gupfert, is attending a dinner party. She's 28 years of age, Swiss-born, raised partly in Germany has been in New York for a few years. She works at a gallery, and she teaches art history. She lectures art history in the evenings at Hunter College. Now, she's had a vision of meeting a great man, and this has stuck with her for many years. However, at this time in her life, she is taken with hobnobbing with the intelligentsia, and with such things as fashion and elegance. And she is very much looking forward to the lobster that would be brought out shortly. So here at this party, she meets Oraj. She knows him vaguely. Aren't you the manuscript reader? I guess Gurdjieff has produced a manuscript that's being passed around certain circles already. It hasn't been published or anything. And he invites her to Carnegie Hall upstairs. Would you like to hear Mr. DeHartman playing some Gurdjieff music? Well, she goes with him. It's within walking distance. And uh, when she gets up there, it's a combination of music, 
Mr. Khrushchev screaming at Arash for being late or one thing or another. And the room is full of cigarette smoke. And this goes on with Thomas DeHartman stopping the piano for the harangue and then starting it again. And so she says, I'm leaving. She leaves. She's over by the elevator when behind her, Mr. Khrushchev appears. Where go? What do? And this was the beginning. This was Gurdjieff's second trip to New York. She is with him off and on for a few weeks. He is writing the Elzebub's Tales to his grandson. Actually, he's revising it. He's already written it. He's hanging out in Child's Restaurant, or she goes to dinner at his apartment where there's lots and lots of people and lots of boisterous dinner havings. She is taken by the power of his words, by the man and his method. He eventually asks her to come to the Priory and translate his book into German. She pleads that she has obligations. He says, when they're up, please come over. After school is out in June, she sails over. She is another one who leaves her life behind to be with this man. But the Priory has changed a lot. Upon Gurdjieff's return from the last trip five years earlier, he was in a terrible car accident. When he recovered slowly, he sent many students away and refocused his efforts and began writing. He wrote Beelzebub for three years, just all the time. And he had started meetings with remarkable men when she arrived. Beelzebub was in revision and translation into three languages, Russian, English, French, and German, right? It was originally written in Russian and Armenian with lots of made-up words, and it was a hodgepodge Oraj had translated. Or it had been roughly translated, and he turned it into literature. Some of his Russian people, I guess, had been able to get it into English, and he turned it into literature. That was what they used to work with. Gene de Salzman was working on the French version. Don't know who's doing the Russian one. This was difficult writing, difficult translation. It was not just word for word at all. It was finding the right word all the way along. It was almost a group effort. Uh, Louise worked with Alexander de Salzman with words and a woman named Lily. And Gurdjieff listened to them in every language, and he could tell if this was the right flow or not. So they had to keep going back. And Louise later wrote, this was our schooling. It was not just the effort of translation, but it actually put them inside the book where they could understand it in certain ways that they couldn't even imagine at the beginning. It was an inside view. It was like being inside a clock, and the, the rewards were so rich. But it was, again, very difficult. She became his personal secretary at that time after the Hartman departed for Paris, the Hartmans did at that point. And she was collecting money from visitors. And he took her to the scene of his accident. He took her to Chartres Cathedral they went through together. I would have loved to be with them on that. I love Chartres. I've never been there and I would love to. They went to Germany and they went to New York three times together as part of the groups that went. This is a picture that was taken in 1931. This is Gurdjieff here. This is Louise. 
my future teacher, Madame de Salzman, and this is Dr. Schoenval, an old Russian student, one of the earliest. He arranged for that photo to be taken and then had his beard shaved the very next day. The uh, priory was closed in 1932, owing to the Great Depression that was worldwide. The monies were not flowing in from the different groups and peoples that were sponsoring Gurdjieff. You know, he never spent any money on himself. He had a coat, you know, he had his clothes. So much money went through his hands in his lifetime. And he spent it all on others. So Louise Gupfert, she went to Berlin, where she shortly later married Walter March, an architect, and became Mrs. March. And they began to have children. They eventually had five. And for her, it was not just biological. She later said she wanted to bring them up as seed beds for a soul. Seed beds for a soul. This was a strong wave, this idea of of helping children to be more, to give them some benefits from this that would permeate through, which affected me. So this is where it started here. Anyway, they experienced the mass psychosis of the Nazis coming to power and didn't want any part of that left for the U.S. in 36, Louise and Walter March. They're a small family. They lived in New York State, upstate a little bit, until they bought a dairy called Spring Farm because they were so dedicated to the idea of raising children a certain way. This was an hour and a half north of New York, up in the foothills of the Catskills, Orange County. Walter even gave up being an architect to run this dairy. They homeschooled. The kids ran barefoot. I knew these kids when they grew up. So Mrs. Marsh wrote, I struggled to live what I understood to be the fundamental principle of right education, to respect the individuality of each life without imposing my expectation on the child. There was a lot. She wrote a lot about this, actually, and others felt it very deeply. This was a big wave that went through the 50s and 60s as well. But here we are in 1939 on Spring Farm, and they put their money where their mouth was there. Other people who were in the work actually lived with them for a while, including Peggy Flinch and her family and C.S. Knott and his family. These people became the nucleus of the children's group in New York that I was later part of. She held uh, Sunday Beelzebub readings for quite a few years, traveled to the Southwest with some of those families, the Flinches, for instance. Remained in touch with Gurdjieff the whole time. He had visited her in Berlin and they saw each other in New York. At that time, her two young kids met him. Through the war, Gurdjieff stayed in Paris, in occupied Paris, still teaching. His last trip was in 48, after the war. A lot of movements, big meals, special attention to the many children, candy, money, advice. By now, bulky, slower, a grandfather figure. Her final assignment, to oversee the publication of the German Beelzebub. This was the 1,200-page book. Please bear in mind, this was a tough book. This was the great effort being done in the last 
months of Gurdjieff's life was to get this thing into print in all these languages. She spent six months doing proofreading, printing, and publicity over in Paris and Vienna, working with an Austrian printer. On October 29, 1949, she was called back to Paris from Vienna. Up in the air, she knew he had died. Before he died, he assigned two Spensky students, John Bennett, to lead the work in England, and Lord Pentland, Lord John Pentland in North America, and Jean de Salzman, Madame de Salzman in France, and overall, they had the work. Jean de Salzman later wrote, the task became clear to me. It would be necessary to work without respite to form a nucleus capable through its level of objectivity, devotion, and the demands it would make on itself of sustaining the current that had been created. This last part is about me and brings us closer to the present. So how my father got involved in the work, I do not know. It is funny how we do not ask sometimes our parents some critical questions, but I do know that he was a seeker. This is him uh, when I was a baby. I do know that he was already involved when I came along in June of 1953, which happened to be the same month that the foundation building was purchased in New York, three and a half years after Mr. Gurdjieff's passing. And how he knew Mrs. March, I do not know. How he met her, I do know that they both spoke German, and they became fairly close. Uh, My mother brought me in a wicker basket to Mrs. March to meet her when I was still small enough to fit in a bassinet. Here is a picture of my mother and father and me. We visited her farm. She had at that time moved back to New York, but was going back weekends. She had rented the farm to a tenant who eventually bought the farm, but uh, she still had it for the first few years of my life. I was there at age two and three, and when she was there weekends, I still have several memories of that time, believe it or not. This is my mother with Mrs. March at the farm in about 1955. My mother and Mrs. March. My mother liked to wear gypsy dresses. I thought she was very beautiful. Mrs. March in a kimono of some kind. My mother was not in the work, but she liked Mrs. March a lot perhaps because of her artistic side, because my mother was artistic, and her Europeanness, because my mother loved France. My father made himself my teacher, which wasn't an ideal fit. He was more cerebral, not that I wasn't stuck in my head for much of my life, but I was more of a feeling person. He was in Pentland's group for many years. Pentland was an intellectual. There was a lot of influence on me from that whole side and a mix of doctrine, food for the moon, mi-fa interval is heavy stuff when you're a kid. But he provided impressions, rich environment, and a lot of freedom. But my resentment would grow over time because I wanted a normal dad, and I wanted to be normal. Nevertheless, at age five or six, I found myself in the pipsqueak class at the foundation doing movements, Saturday mornings. 
We sometimes did demonstrations all in white on special occasions for a large group of parents and important people. The foundation was a beehive of activity on Saturday mornings. I can remember sewing a tapestry, learning Spanish, making puppets, while the other groups were in progress. Later on, we went to Corey Lane on Sundays, a farm, which was part of Franklin Farms, which is actually the Espensky estate. They moved over from England during the war, and they had a beautiful farm that used to belong to the New Jersey governor with stone barns and whatnot. We were working on a poor section where maybe it was a tenant farm that was attached, doing work, work, digging, scraping, making lunch for everybody. What child wants to work? I didn't, did not want to work. But the highlight was the reading of the book Monkey by my beloved women's teacher, Jim Knott. And at the end of the days on Sunday, and I read this on my own too, at home. This copy is from my house in 1958, was when I was a kid, this copy of Monkey. I wonder if it's related to Hanuman in some way. Anyways, I love this book. A word about the people. There were a lot of kids at that time. A lot of kids. We were surrounded by people who had met, known, and worked with Mr. Gurdjieff personally. They were doing their best. They were full of care, respect, carried themselves in a certain way. I felt hate on the conscious level, awe on the semi-conscious level and love on the unconscious level that only grows with the passing years. This next aphorism, a true sign of a good man is if he loves his mother and father. A true sign of a good man is if he loves his mother and father. I'm not gonna dwell on this, but I wanna say that I felt hurt and angry as time went by. There were marital problems, And there was more pressure from my father, the teacher, that seemed to work together. And and even as I became an adult, he never stopped wanting to be my teacher. And I felt that he was enthused, maybe well-meaning, but overbearing. But we finally both let go, and he passed away in 2009. This is a young picture of innocence that represents the reconciling of our relationship. And now I have nothing but love, gratitude, and admiration for him and what all that he gave me. So my secret life of Saturdays and Sundays ended with my mother's passing. She abruptly left this earth plane. One day she was there, and the next day we did not have a mom. But I began working on myself. I found that when my dad suggested I do something or other, and I said, I'm working on that. And I didn't just say it as a lie to get him off my back. In June of 68, my dad said, we're going to a farm for the weekend. I asked him, a work farm? He said, yes, Mrs. March. I said, oh, boy. And he said, possibly for the summer. So four of us boys went up there for the summer. My younger brother and I, my future stepbrother and his young friend, and we had a miserable time. 
said if we ever went back there, we would need to bring cases of soda and cartons of cookies and hide them in the hay barn if we wanted to survive a summer like that. But as it turned out, I was there seven of my next eight years, and it was of my own accord. So here comes another aphorism. Remember, you have come here already having understood the necessity of struggling with yourself, only with yourself. Therefore, thank everyone who gives you the opportunity. Like the Priory, the farm was a community and a school, and a large part of the emotional component talked about the three centers, thinking, emotional, and physical. That's what the work features, is that you work on all three at once. And a large part of the emotional component there was the interdynamic between people, working with others, frictions, triggering, mirroring the arisings of strong emotions to be observed in coming to know oneself, opportunities to work. I want to say briefly, the study hall was built, and that was 100 years after the first. That was 50 years. It was 1973. So there's a 50 and 100 and 150 these resonances, I love them. And here we are at this point where we can feel that. It's sort of like the astrological alignments. So that study hall, the pre-array, was utilitarian and had the feeling of a Sufi tech, which is a place of worship. This was built at East Hill Farm, a movements hall in 1973. It's 50 years after 1923 was more like a piece of furniture, a giant piece of furniture in a Japanese temple style with hand-scraped beams and a vast hardwood floor with nary a squeak. But it had the same carpets and the same feeling about it. And in many ways, the farm was like the pre-array, but it didn't start that way, and it grew organically into that. I feel very, very fortunate. When I read about the puree, I said, I wish I was there. And I, oh, wait a minute. I was. In every sense of the word, I was. Because Mrs. March had the visceral quality of Gurdjieff. She wasn't intellectual. She could bring all those ideas. She had the strength and the vigor to pound us. In 1973, also, the aphorisms were first published in this book, Views from the Real World, 50 years after they appeared in the uh, prairie itself. That book was from 1973. We got to pre-order that back then. I still have it. I cherish that book. Just to finish here, Mrs. Marsh was reading that from that book. That's where we heard them. Here there are neither Russians, nor English, nor Jews, nor Christians, but only those who pursue one aim, to be able to be. That's my final aphorism for tonight. Here there are neither Russians, nor English, Jews, nor Christians, but only those who pursue one aim, to be able to be. Please. Let's use the last part of this time to share. In our day and age, the idea of conscious labor and intentional suffering does not sound appealing, does not sell well anymore. So I wonder about the future of Gurdjieff's teachings 
had had its time and place when he came to the West. And this is another time and place. Do you have any comment? I have thought about that. I have observed that the publicity around the work now is aimed at making it seem lighter. It's been renamed The Fourth Way. It isn't the work. It's a fourth-way study group now. And I don't believe that the transmission is going to occur with the light version. It may just have to work with less people. It was never for masses anyway. More than ever, I believe, it is needed to keep it pure. I don't consider myself a hard-nosed guy, but that's in a nutshell, I think. I will say there's a lot of misunderstanding that I had, myself even. It needs to be understood who Gurdjieff was. He was a man that his chief feature was compassion. And he comes across as a rough dude who stepped on people's corns and whatnot. And he he was a hard taskmaster, and so was Mrs. March. But these people were driven by love. Somehow that needs to get out. That needs to be understood. Mr. Gajif and Mrs. March had sufficient impulse and energy to carry the work to the East Hill Farm, which continues to this day and is a work center for the study of his ideas. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I am very glad to see that there are a number of people here tonight from that farm that I'm talking about. It is still going. 50 years ago and 50 years before that, and the pulse continues. I'm very impressed to hear about the amount of inclusivity of children in this work that you experienced in your life and that was going on there because I had never had that impression of how much the education was happening there. I know in my tradition, my teacher was very much interested in conscious parenting and creating a chamber for the children to be in, to learn, but not to be indoctrinated. Thank you for that. You can find these aphorisms online. And I would say, don't try to swallow them all right away, but look at them if you like. They contain a lot. 